This morning, I will be reading from Mark 9, 2 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that, the first, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Travis. Uh, I am the new pastor here. So if it's uh, one of your first Sundays, it's one of mine too. So we're in good uh, company here. Uh, happy Mother's Day to those of us uh, here who are mothers. Uh, as Greg prayed in his prayer, today can be a real mixed bag uh, for experiences with moms. Uh, my family having just lost my wife's mom can be a hard day. Some of us have broken relationships uh, with our mothers. That can be hard too. Some of us long to be mothers and cannot be, uh, long for different situations than we have. Whatever you're going through today, whatever your experience is, I want to encourage you not to stuff that and pretend like that doesn't exist but to just let that sit open before God, to let him meet you in that, to let him speak into that, draw you more and more to him in these things. And I pray that he will do that for you this morning, that you might more and more, through the brokenness that we experience in whatever ways, encounter the God who makes all things new. Uh, this is my first Sunday on the job. I started uh, virtually on Monday. I'm going to be in a little bit of a cycle here until we actually get to move up, uh, working virtually during the week and then for as many Sundays as I can during the month, uh, commuting up very briefly, sort of a parachute drop in and out uh, to keep my wife from losing her mind as a mother uh, who also needs help. So uh, this is the beginning of a journey that we get to take together. Uh, where I'm going to get to learn more and more about you, uh, your stories, the things that are on your heart. And likewise, you're going to get to learn about me, my story, my life, my ministry style, my preaching voice, 
Uh, we're going to get to know each other. And that's going to be a process. There are certainly going to be bumps along the road, uh, misunderstandings, miscommunications, no doubt. Uh, but I'm confident that the Lord will use these things, as He does with all things, for our good and for the good of our city to draw us closer together. All that to say, I'm very excited to be here this morning uh, and starting in with you on this work that you all have called me to and for which I am uh, very grateful. We're going to be beginning a roughly two-month uh, series here together, uh, as often as I'm able to be here, going through some selections from the book of Mark. As you saw, we started with uh, chapter 9 today in a series that I'm calling Meeting the Real Jesus, focusing on how Mark's gospel reveals to us who Jesus really is. Not just the Jesus that we like to think of, maybe you've heard, maybe you've said, I like to think of Jesus this way. Not the Jesus that we might have a smaller picture of than is actually true, but the Jesus that is revealed in His own words in Scripture. We're trying to take Jesus as He is, meet Him on His own terms, because whether we are Christians or not, everyone in this room, we're all prone to shrink Jesus down. To, to smooth him out, to cut off the rough edges that we don't like, to stop him short of having certain powers, certain abilities, speaking into certain things. We are all prone to make Jesus small, to make him smaller than he really is. And we end up either rejecting a God that isn't real. We reject a puppet instead of the actual true God or, as Christians, we put hope in a God that we feel like isn't strong enough for the moment that we're facing. And so we end up, whether rejecting or accepting, falling short of what God would have for us by not seeing the real Jesus. I want us through this series, whether as Christians or non-Christians, to meet the real Jesus, maybe for the first time, maybe again, and to be changed by Him not just to have information about Him. I don't want you to walk away knowing a little bit more about Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. My prayer is that you would meet the real Jesus, that you would encounter more maybe than you bargained for, and that you might leave even with questions, unresolved questions. That's okay. That's actually not a bad thing. It can just reveal that there is more thinking, more reflecting to be done. If you leave in some way confused or uncertain this morning, let my encouragement to you be that's not a bad place to be, that even the disciples in this passage left this moment confused and uncertain about what these things meant for them. But we're going to begin today by focusing on seeing the real Jesus as powerful, as glorious, as something beautiful, otherworldly even, as something that's maybe more than we can actually imagine. And we're going to do that by looking in Mark 9 here at this famous incident of the transfiguration of Jesus, uh, where the immortal, this otherworldly nature, the God, divine nature of Jesus Christ, is revealed to His closest friends for a few moments. I want us to see how encountering that Jesus like they did, that moment that Mark records, not just for them to see, but for us to know about as well, how that moment changes our lives. So to do that, I'm going to have us focus on three things. First, seeing Jesus like this. Second, who 
sees Jesus like this. And finally, why seeing Jesus like this is not enough to really change us. So seeing Jesus like this, who sees him like this, and why just seeing him like this is not enough to really change us. Before we get into those things, would you, would you bow your heads with me in prayer and let's invite God to meet us in this time. God, it's your word that we are opening here. It's your story. It's your life that we are coming to witness, coming to see, coming to encounter. You, we believe, have given these things to us that we might not have to guess who you are, that we might not have to wonder and carve it out ourselves, that we might not have to seek you out as if you were hiding in some far corner of the universe waiting to be discovered, but knowing that you are the God who draws near, sometimes uncomfortably near. Sometimes there is a distance. Sometimes there is an uncertainty about our relationship with you. Father, I don't know what these hearts are feeling this morning as it regards you, but you know. You are greater, you are stronger, and so I pray this morning that you would be greater, greater than our ability to hear, greater than my ability to speak, that you would be the one who fills up these places, these spaces, these hearts that we might leave having truly encountered you and having been changed. It's in your Son's name and by your powerful Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. So I grew up in California, as some of you know, and as some of my appearance may give away. Uh, growing up in California, I would go on family trips, not infrequently, to the Grand Canyon. It's not nearly as far from there as it is from here. You drive there, it wasn't too bad. Uh, so I went, growing up, I would go there a lot of times, but then there were probably a stretch of 10 years where I hadn't been at all, you know, maybe from age 10 to sort of age 20. I went back uh, for a trip with my parents in college, hadn't been there in a while. And when you drive up, uh, at least I think to the south side of the Grand Canyon, when you get to where the kind of campsites are and the, the sort of national park buildings, there are all these trees that separate where the road is and where the campsites are from the canyon. So you can't actually see the canyon when you drive up, at least from this side. And so you want to actually, you know, you've set your things down, you want to go and see the Grand Canyon. That's why you're there, right? You're not there to eat. The restaurants are not good. Uh, you're, you're there to see this thing. And so when you actually get up there, you start just walking through these trees and you can't tell how far the trees go before the canyon starts. So you're just kind of walking, you're having a conversation, blah, 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 you're just sort of chit-chatting, and then you walk past one tree and boom! All of a sudden, there it is. No more barrier between you and it, just the vastness and immensity of this wonder carved into the rock right in front of you. It's massive, it's just suddenly revealed to you. No picture can really prepare you for standing there. Google Earth can't prepare you for being in front of this of how massive and how large it feels. How you can walk for miles around the edge of the canyon rim and still not really change your view all that much. The immensity of it really hits you. You, you know that you're standing in front of something that's been there for long, long periods of time before you've been there that will be there for long, long periods of time after you if Jesus doesn't come back for something that is huge and you feel very finite in that moment. You recognize that in some sense you're standing before something that feels to you uncontainable, that you can't get your arms around, that you can't take home with you. 
And in the same way that I encountered the Grand Canyon like that, and maybe you've encountered things like that in life, these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, suddenly have an experience of Jesus that takes them out of the trees and to the edge of a canyon, to a, to a moment of transformation where they are in the presence of something immense and huge before them that they hadn't expected to see at that moment. This passage pushes us through the trees of our familiar categories and conceptions of Jesus to the edge of who He really is. So what's He like? So jumping into our first point here, seeing Jesus like this, verses 2 through 3 describe something that's, that's a little hard to get our arms around. It seems like even the authors of the Gospels are struggling to explain what this looked like to the people that saw it. Uh, Mark tells us here in his account that, that Jesus looked radiant even down to His clothing, right? So His clothes themselves were reflecting the radiance of God even though the clothes were not God, right? Something just by being in the presence of Jesus is being transformed. We're seeing a greatness there, wider, it says, than anything could ever bleach them on earth. There is a, a massive glow to Jesus in this moment. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus' face shone like the sun. And if you go outside later today, uh, kids, if you're here, I don't want you to do this for long, but if you take a very quick glance at the sun, you realize just how bright that is, that you can't stare in it. So we're picturing almost a moment where the disciples are like, they can't look quite at what they're seeing. Luke's gospel says that Jesus' appearance was altered. There's something here that they can't quite get their arms around, but what we know for sure is that He looked otherworldly, glorious, radiant, he was revealed in this passage, in this moment, as something more than just the guy they had been hanging out with, something more than just simply human. He was revealed as something that when you encounter it, it just floors you because you're standing now in the presence of something so completely beyond yourself. something that honestly makes us a little bit afraid, right? If we're honest, that's what verse 6 says. They weren't just afraid, they were terrified when they saw it. This is something that is completely stunning and upending for them. Uh, this is the kind of appearance, the kind of revealing that a fashion show only wishes were possible. Uh, the Met Gala was just this past Monday, uh, which is perhaps the year's biggest fashion show. Uh, this is the kind of appearance that if it happened at the Met Gala would have shut down the entire event. If you could have been there and Jesus appeared like this, if you could speak at all, you might say something like, who are you wearing? And Jesus would say, I'm wearing glory by God the Father from the Eternity Collection. Uh, <laughs> But the picture is not one of Jesus dressing up to go to a gala, but just one actually of Him dressing down, of letting the guard down, of letting His true appearance come out, not having to put on something that He isn't really, but having to let who He really is come before them. 
People are finally seeing Him as He really is, and it's overwhelming. This happens time and again in the Gospels. We're not going to get into the incident of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus calms the storm, but it's the same kind of reaction. All of a sudden, they have a realization that the person who is with them is not like them. There is something different between them. There is a divide, a gulf. They are encountering the infinite in the finite, and something in them is afraid. His true glory is on display, and it's so massive, so completely otherworldly, that to behold it would simply overwhelm you. And that's what it seems to do here. And in doing this for us, in pulling back the curtain on who Jesus really is, to show us God's glory shining like this in the person of the eternal Son, God in a moment disintegrates all the little boxes that we like to try and stuff Jesus into. The box of Jesus as the nice guy who is always just your friend, who never judges. The box of Jesus as the wise teacher who always has a good answer but isn't more than that. Of Jesus, who is the revolutionary, calling for action. Jesus, the friend. And He certainly is all those things, but we'd like to try and put Him in just one of those boxes. We're more comfortable with Jesus just as the friend, just as the teacher, just as the revolutionary. We're not as comfortable with Jesus as all these things, Jesus with some rough edges. Here He stands as something beyond our simplified, watered-down, one-dimensional versions of Him. Here... We start to get a glimpse of Him as He really is, as a three-dimensional God. This is how Scripture presents Jesus to you. You don't have to see, I'm not doing anything different here. This is just what it says in Mark on its own terms. This is who the Bible says Jesus is, much more than just human, much more than just nice, wise or courageous, something otherworldly, something beyond. This is a passage that is trying to take us past the trees of our comfortable ideas of what Jesus is like to the edge of something greater than we know what to do with. It shows us a bigger God. And if we wonder if this is just made up later on. This is just a historical embellishment to add on to the aura of Jesus as the wise teacher, friend, revolutionary. I want us to note that it includes some odd details if this is something that's just added later on. For example, Jesus' closest friends, right? Peter, James, and John, these are the inner circle, right? This is his cabinet. These are his guys. These are the ones that go on to change the face of the church and the face of the world. They look embarrassing here. Right? This is not a great ad for these guys. If they are running a political campaign, you're not doing a 30-second commercial with this event in it. You look ridiculous. They're terrified here. They're not praising Jesus' glory. They're not extolling and saying, we knew this was coming. We knew you were like this. They're terrified. And terrified is not an adject adjective that you use for yourself if you want to create some myth of greatness. 
It's not, right? It's not, you don't use it on the playground to get more friends. Hi, I'm Travis. I'm a terrified person. Would you play with me? Right? You don't use it on your LinkedIn profile under your lists and strengths. Terrified, right? You would show up in zero searches that week if that's your banner. They're also asking about tents. Tents, right? This is a very strange thing. The first thing out of your mouth when you're creating a myth is not asking someone if you can set up a tent for them. Think about the ridiculousness of that, right? Can I, can I set up a tent for you? <laughs> this is great. I'm so glad we're here. It's good for us to be here, right? You can almost hear like the fear and breakdown in Peter's mind as he says these things. The text itself says this was nonsense, right? Verse 6, they didn't know what they were saying. Peter is just trying to babble in the face of the infinite. And yet... The passage says these things. It doesn't gloss them over. It says that these big three, right, important people in the church were terrified and that they became babbling sort of fools, that they didn't know what they were saying. These are the kind of details that you include when something really happened, when what you were sharing is just what you remember from being there. The nature of this account lends itself to a historical event, and the event lends itself to an otherworldly encounter of Jesus. This, as the Scripture is saying, is what He is really like. But I want us to take a moment to notice who gets to see Him like this, because it shows us something more, actually, of His glory, of His goodness, of the fullness of who He really is. So moving on to our second point, who sees Jesus like this? Well, it's Peter, James, and John. They see Him like this. They see Him in this glory. This surprisingly was for them. And you might say, of course it was for them, for these guys, the inner circle. But let's just wind the clock back a second. We didn't get to read this today, but if you go back in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, let's look at Peter, right? Let's just look just for a second at Peter's track record. Peter, only six days earlier, essentially, right? Not much longer before this. Uh, Peter has this cataclysmic fallout with Jesus. He gets into this huge conflict in verses 31 to 33, where Peter had taken it upon himself to take Jesus aside, take him out of the group and say, Jesus, you are an idiot. You are blowing this. You don't know what you're understanding after Jesus is starting to unpack how he needs to die to bring the kingdom of God to bear. Peter says, no, 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 no. That's not how we do this, right? That's not how revolutions happen. They happen through strength, through conviction, through whatever it is. Peter is wildly off the mark here. Right? Peter doesn't see things with the eyes of God. He didn't know how God's people would be saved. He didn't understand how that would be done. He was so out of line with what God's plan was that this rebuke was something that Jesus needed that was actually fitting for Jesus to respond to by saying, Satan, get behind me. I know some of us have been in uncomfortable arguments, but if someone calls you Satan, to your face, right? Your relationship has shifted. <laughs> Something is not going to be the same between you in the coming days, right? This is a tense, awkward moment. Peter was misinformed. He was out of line. Jesus had to bring him back in line. So this is a big conflict, certainly an uncomfortable time in their friendship. 
And it, the surprise is that it's these guys, that it's this guy, the one that Peter just had all this fallout with. Jesus takes him, right? Your relationships, when you have a huge blowout with someone, is it within a week that you are inviting them and only two other people to this exclusive life-changing event in a private place? Are you inviting them out on the super yacht with just you and a couple other people, right? No. You're inviting the people that you're on good terms with. But who does Jesus invite to see him like this? He invites Peter. Why? He invites James and John, who when people said that, you know, that Jesus isn't the one that didn't, that didn't affirm Jesus as God, that they said, can we call down fire on them from heaven, right? Guys that just wanted to wipe people out, people that Jesus came to say, he invites them to come see him like this. Why? Because Jesus' love for them and his good gifts for them were not based on their love and understanding of him. His care for them, his love for them was not based on their understanding and their love for him, but his love for them. Jesus invited them, people like that, into something more, not because they deserve it, but because he knew it was what would bless them. And he gave it to them. I want to tell you, this is not an exception. This is not a carve-out clause. This is how Jesus works. He loves and He gives to you not because you understand Him finally, not because you have your theology right, not because you have your act right, but because He chooses to love you. He leads you not based on your ability, but based on His. Based on not your love, but on His. Not on your understanding, but on His. As in, He doesn't stop caring for you when you've blown it, when you've walked away from Him. Maybe for a moment in your heart, maybe in a conversation, maybe for months, maybe for years, He doesn't stop caring for you if you stop caring for Him. He doesn't stop caring for you when you fail, when you have blown it, perhaps this week, perhaps last night. He doesn't stop caring for you in these moments. He doesn't stop caring for you when things aren't going as you expected, when your plans aren't working out, when you can't make the things happen that you thought you could make happen, when you don't have the resume, the academics together, when these things don't fall together, His love for you does not fall apart. His love for you does not fall apart. He brings you closer in. He is more drawn to you in those moments, not less. He still loves you as you are today. Through this passage, we see that Jesus invites even foolish, headstrong, broken people to know Him, to see Him, to have an experience of Him as He really is. This is Jesus, the all-powerful and the glorious, and yet, and this is why we said we need to see who goes with Him, also Jesus, the all-powerful and glorious, who forgives 
who loves, who draws closer. This is a Jesus in three dimensions. But, and getting to our final point here, why isn't just seeing Jesus like this enough for real change? It wasn't for Peter, James, and John. They saw Jesus like this, and yet later in this very same chapter, right, in, in moments following this one, they're going to be arguing amongst themselves over who is the greatest. They just saw that, Jesus, otherworldly, amazing, infinite, and they're like, yeah, but which of us is better, right? <laughs> which of us is the coolest person? They're having that argument moments later. Moments later, they're rebuking people for trying to bring children to see Jesus. Later in the book, Peter is going to deny even knowing Jesus, who he saw like this. He's going to do that three times in a span of hours. The Peter who was ready to throw down and fight and take the knives out and go to work saw Jesus like this, denies even knowing him three times. They saw Jesus like this, and yet they were still broken, selfish, self-centered, short-sighted people. What I want us to see is that seeing Jesus like this, based on just the lies of Peter, James, and John, is not enough to really change you, even if it is good for you and what God delights to show you of Himself. An otherworldly experience of God a moment of transcendence is not enough to fix what is wrong with us and our world. The problem is bigger. What is it? Well, we're going to think about John the Baptist for a second who comes out in verses 12 to 13 because I think he helps us see what the bigger problem is, why just seeing Jesus like this is not enough. Uh, John the Baptist had a ministry that prepared the way for Jesus' own ministry. I want us to see a continuity running between the two, that Jesus picks up, in a sense, where John leaves off, that John points to where Jesus is going to go. As Jesus himself alludes to in verses 12 and 13, John is this Elijah figure, not saying he was Elijah, but he held his office, the office of prophet, one who would speak the things of God to the people of God, calling them back to him. John sits in that seat, as it were. He has that office. John's preparing the way, calling the people of God back to God. And what's John's ministry all about? If you went all the way back to Mark chapter 1, it says John's ministry was one of declaring a baptism of repentance repentance, not a corrective lens restoration clinic, right? Not, not seeing something different, not a transcendent experience parlor. He's pointing out to us in that baptism of repentance, in the whole of His ministry being characterized by repentance, He's pointing out that the problem is not our sight, not our seeing God, but our hearts, our loving God. John's ministry called people to repent and believe, not to see something special, but to repent, which is a word that means to turn, to turn away from what you have been walking towards and to turn toward 
God. This is what the office of prophet does, to call people back to God, turn away from the ways that you're walking away from Him and back towards God. This ministry that prepared the way for Jesus, calling for repentance, didn't say to see something new, but to have your heart changed. The problem is not what we see, but what we love. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus like this, but there was still a problem with what they loved. See, the problem never was our sight, hasn't been, won't be. The problem is our heart's chronic searching for fulfillment anywhere and everywhere we could hope to find it except with God, the only one who is ever meant to satisfy us. The problem is our walking away from Him, our not listening to His, his, his desperate pleas almost to find true fulfillment where it can only be found, in a place where it won't trip you up, where it won't leave you short, where it won't ask you for more than you are prepared to give and diminish who you are by letting yourself revolve around that thing which was never meant to hold you. problem is our unwillingness to change course and to listen to Him, not just to see Him. That's why God the Father says, listen to Him, hear Him, don't just see Him, but follow. The problem is not our seeing, it's our following, it's our heart. And that problem does not change just by seeing something new. Again, it didn't for Peter, James, and John, and they saw him this way. That's why John is said to only have prepared the way for Jesus, to point forward towards the healing, the change that needed to come. He couldn't give that healing. He could only point towards it. He could only ask people to come back to show them, to call out to them about what the problem was. John is pointing to the thing that needs to be fixed, but even in his own words in Mark's gospel and the other gospel, says, I'm not the one who can actually fix this. This is the problem. The problem is the heart, but you need someone else to fix the heart. He's only able to point us in the right direction to the glorious Savior that we see in this passage. But that saving that He would bring comes through a very different transfiguration. Not a transfiguration of power and of glory. That's what Peter thought it would look like, bringing the smackdown on all those that might oppress the people of God. That's not what this heart change would come through because seeing wasn't the problem. It would come through the transfiguration of the cross. That was where, as our text says in verse 12, Jesus would suffer many things and be treated with contempt for our sake. It was there that He was transfigured in a way that would truly change us. There that His garments were not illuminated but taken away. There that He was mocked by two thieves instead of encouraged by two saints. It's there that He had no affirmation from the Father. There is no voice speaking on the cross, this is my Son, listen to Him, because He was standing in for us in our sin, which deserves no answer back.
It was there that He was shining, but with the muted glory of the redemption of His blood. He was transfigured there, becoming our substitute for sin, standing in our place, doing what we can't do to turn our hearts around so that you and I, if we only believe in Him, not if we have some extravagant experience, not if we do all these things, not if we finally accomplish these things, have this happen in our lives, but if we would only believe that He can do it, we would be changed. brought home to the God that we have been running away from. Because the problem is not our seeing His glory, it's that we didn't love His glory. Adam and Eve saw His glory in the garden and they turned away from it. The problem is not our seeing God like this, the problem is our love of God. We seek that radiance in a thousand other places. Our hearts can't help but pursue it. We know that we need it. We want the transcendent in some way. It's embedded into us, but we can't help almost singing along with you too that we still haven't found what we're looking for. It's the transfiguration of the cross that turns our heart around. It's Jesus' stepping into our dishonor, being crucified in our place and rising up from death to shine then in power and glory. That is what changes us, His action, not ours. And Jesus does all that for us even when we are like Peter, even when we're like John. Even if you this morning are at complete odds with Him, even if you have walked away from Him entirely, He still pursues you. The good news is this, that He loves us and saves us even when we don't know the way to love, even when we're not looking for it. Not that we have to see it and accomplish it on our own. That's not the Christian story but that He sees you and saves you. He takes you to Him. His salvation is something that we are caught up in, not that we catch. It's something that we are carried away by, not that we carry. It's more like a river that rushes and takes us with it than it is a bucket of water we have to carry up the hill of self-salvation. Step into the waters of His love and let Him carry you away, because this is the God that we are offered, a God that is bigger than us, wider than we can get our arms around, deeper and greater than we can possibly fathom, someone that stuns us when we see Him as He is. And so in closing, let me encourage you to do just two things based off of this, to know and to walk. I want to ask you first, do you know this Jesus. What are the ways that the Jesus you know is not this Jesus, is a one-dimensional Jesus? How have you shrunk Jesus down into something that is not the fullness of who He is? Are you rejecting a Jesus that isn't real? Are you putting hope in a Jesus that isn't real, a less than Jesus rather than a greater than Jesus, a Jesus of our own making? 
in a culture so focused on our looks? Do you know a Jesus who blows away anything beauty could ever hope to offer in this place and time? I want to say this to our sisters in particular because our culture can be very cruel to sisters, to women, based on what you can or can't do with your body, based on what you do or don't look like with your appearance. Do you know, do we know, brothers, do we treat women in a way where we know the beauty and glory of God? A Jesus who appearance is so glorious it takes all the pressure off of any of us to be beautiful, to be handsome, to be attractive. Whose glory lets you be less than the best dressed best looking, whose beauty lets you grow old, lets your skin wrinkle a little bit, because His glory, His beauty is now your glory, your beauty, because He is the one that could let you roll up to the Met Gala and say, I'm wearing glory by God the Father because that is who He makes you. Do you know that God who gives you that freedom to walk around this earth, this city, in His beauty, in His glory? Christians, do you know Him like that? Do I? Are we fighting the battles of our life? Are we settling into anxiety and stress because we're living with one arm tied behind our back? because we don't know Him like this. Because this is Scripture, this is the Jesus that Scripture gives us. This is what He tells us He is like. Turn to this God, know this God, believe in this Jesus, not a one-dimensional version of Him, but the real three-dimensional Him. And finally, walk. I want to encourage you to walk the road that John pointed us towards, the road of repentance, the road of heart change. And I want to encourage you on that. It doesn't just become then a self-salvation project of Jesus gets me in and then I do all the work. The road of repentance is a road that expects that you don't have what it takes to be on that road in the first place. The road of repentance is like those moving walkways at the airport. It expects that you need help getting moved along because Jesus has the power for you. You can't, but He can. That's repentance. That's the heart of repentance. Repentance is turning away even from my, my faith that I can somehow do this myself, that I can somehow make this right. Repentance is saying, I can't, but He can. So in that power, not from you, I want to encourage you to find two opportunities to repent this week, to walk the road of repentance in a real, tangible way, one big and one small. We're going to tackle the big one first. What is something that you need to turn away from that you just don't want to? A habit, an idol, something that is kind of sucking the life out of your relationships, out of you, out of your physical body. Take the first step and tell someone that you trust about that struggle, knowing that you are completely 
loved and beautiful now in Christ and that He will help you. Or what's something that you, you know you need to own up to, that you know you need to apologize for, and you just haven't done it? Also, take the first step and just write out everything you think you would need to say to that person. What are the things that I should have said to them that I can't? And then take the second step and tell someone, not them, <laughs> about that. And let them start walking with you on this road. And then take a small step down the road of repentance as well. Stop a little sin quickly. Walk it back. A small sin that you might otherwise indulge. Greed. Apathy even. <laughs> Not caring about others that we are called to care for. A glance at someone with lust. A spiteful word because it just feels good to say it to say it to someone who just cut you off while you're driving. Guilty, right? Like, take the small step of trying to walk these things back. Take it to the power of Jesus and ask Him to change you because you see His beauty. You see something more. You know that Jesus. Walk this road with Him. Let's pray. God, thank You for being so much more than we think You are, so much more than we can understand. Uh, we certainly uh, confess the ways that we just still love sin, that we love to try and find an answer that isn't You, that we don't want to be told, and that applies to Christian and non-Christian alike. God, would You forgive us for that? We know that you came to do that, that you came for people like Peter, like James and John, who didn't want to be told no, who are trying to rebuke you. To us, you come in your goodness and your grace, and you show us your glory. So would you do that this morning, this week, today? Would you let us have the radiance, the beauty of who you are in our hearts, that we might be free from all the things that would take so much more than we want to give. Would you help us walk this road of repentance in one big way and one small way this week that we might change and be new? It's in your Son's name and by your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.